I am so excited. I can't tell you how excited I am. I am in North London and I am coming to meet somebody who has really been the soundtrack of my life. Somebody whose music I first encountered when I was a, a young grammar school boy in Sheffield learning the fiddle and who transformed my view of what folk music could be and continues to amaze me with his songwriting. So it is a red letter day for me. We're in North London and we're going to revisit the childhood and youth of 70-year-old Richard Thompson, routinely voted one of the greatest guitarists in the world, but in my mind also one of the greatest English language songwriters that has ever lived. And he grew up round here, he went to school round here, he shaped his guitar playing and his songwriting round here. So we're looking to find out more about what makes Richard Thompson tick. So good morning Richard, we are bringing you back to your old school. The William Ellis School in Highgate. We've just walked in through the gate. Mm. How, how does it feel to be coming back after all these years? It's very strange. I mean, I haven't been back here since I left. I wouldn't say under a cloud, but ignominiously in uh, 1967. Why, why do you say ignominiously? Well, I, I mean, you know, I, I missed half my exams. Other things. things were on your mind, presumably. Music was on my mind, and I didn't like school. So it, it's strange to be back. I get slight butterflies in my stomach just standing here makes you nervous because yes. you think that somebody's going to tick you off. Somehow I'm thinking that the old headmaster is going to suddenly appear. Shall we just walk further into the yeah, grounds? Absolutely. I think they've given us permission to do that. So what sort of a kid were you when you first came to the school? I think I was shy, introverted, artsy. I loved sort of writing, reading, loved art. And I love music, you know, from a fairly early age. And were you already a guitarist at that stage? Age 11 I was a guitarist, yes I was, yeah. I, I'd been playing for about a year by the time I came to the school. And did you meet like-minded people here? <laughs> Eventually I did. Hugh Coolmore was a classmate of mine. Who went on to be in The Stranglers. He went on to be a strangler. In <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically speaking. In the musical sense of the word. Um, so uh, Hugh was interested in music as I was, and he learned the bass. And we had a little band with another William Ellis kid, Nick Jones, who went on to work on Melody Maker. His father was Max Jones, one of the great jazz writers on Melody Maker. And we play, you know, R&B covers. And I think our favourite band was The Who. Did you have the Pete Townsend windmill action? I thought that was going too far in terms of emulation. <laughs> but this is the old school. Do you um, recognise any of this? Well, all this is much the same. I, I've noticed at the back they've really built on considerably. And I suspect that they now house more pupils. When I was here, it was about 600 kids. Is there a song that you associate with that time that you might sing for us here? I could sing a song that I was playing with my school band. That's an old Everly Brothers song. Perhaps even then we, we had an ear for the obscure. So it's not one of their big hits? <laughs> it's not a hit. It was, it was a later Everly song from the 60s. Well, when They made some really great records, but they really were not able to sustain their career. 
successful as it had been in the 50s. Uh, there was a bit of a shift, you know, the Beatles came in, Everly's found themselves slightly sidelined, but they still made some really great records. And what's this song? This song's called Man With Money. She wants a man with lots of money And I'm a poor boy He buys her things, she calls him honey not a poor boy, what good does it do to give her love good and true? She just doesn't understand, she thinks love's money in your hand. She wants a man with lots of money, I'm not a poor boy, to buy her things and call her I'm not a poor boy, a man with money, a man with money, a man with money. Just down the street, I know a place when they're asleep, I'll cover my face. I'll break the law. Open the door, I'll slip inside, I'll rob the store. Then I'll be a man with lots of money, but not a poor boy. I'll buy her a thing, she call me honey. I'm not a poor boy, a man with money, a man with money. Man with money, man with money, man with money. <laughs> so, what made you pick up a guitar in the first place, Richard? Because it was there. It was in the house. Yeah. Um. My father, one of his army mates, worked in a music shop in the West End and they had this very broken guitar. My father had trained as a joiner, so he, he fixed it, glued it back together again. So it was lying around, but I picked it up, you know, it was, it was a time when the guitar was a very hip thing. Did I your mean, dad play? He played a bit, yeah. Uh, he, he played kind of dance band style, but it was a bit of a lapsed player. But he had great records. He had Django Reinhardt records, Les Paul records. Lonnie Johnson records. So I grew up listening to that stuff, as well as my sister's rock and roll collection. And um, when the Shadows turned up in 1960, everybody suddenly wanted to be in a Shadows style instrumental band. So that was my first band about age 11. Were you a kind of relentless practiser of the guitar even then when you first picked it up? Did you just go? Yeah, I, th I, think, I, th I think it just became obsessive, you know, to the detriment of everything else I practiced. How many hours a day? I think it varied. It depends on how much, how much spare time I had, really. And you were trying to imitate those people, because you've got a song, haven't you, Guitar Heroes, where yeah. you actually do imitate yeah, some yeah, of you, the, you imitate, the Yeah, greats. absolutely. Yeah, you start off imitating. And at some point, with luck, you find your own voice. But that can take a long time. Were you aware of your own voice coming out at a, a reasonably early age? I'm aware of wanting to not sound like everybody else. You know, in the 60s, there were a lot of blues guitar players, and I started out doing that to some extent. But then I thought, you know, there's Eric Clapton, there's Peter Green, you know, white blues guitar players. But on the other hand, you know, I'm also listening to Hubert Sumlin and Buddy Guy. And I'm thinking, well, 
you're never going to be as good playing Chicago blues if you don't come from Chicago. So I thought I need to do something a bit more indigenous. And so I started to look more for homegrown roots to the music. And was that when folk music started to enter your life? Well, uh, you know, I think steadily, yeah. But it's part of the diet, really. You know, I grew up listening to a wide range of music, from classical music to jazz to folk music. And as soon as I was old enough, I'd be going to folk clubs and rock clubs. Growing up in London was fantastic because you had so much music there, you know, to listen to. So what sort of people did you see in folk clubs early on? Folk clubs, you could see Martin Carthy, uh, David Graham, uh, Bert Yancher, all great guitar players. Here, Shirley Collins, uh, the Waterson's. Yeah, it, was, it was a rich... 60s diet. Hi Richard, I'm Guy, I'm the head of music here. Guy, yeah, yeah, nice to see you, Guy. How I, you I doing? want to show you your hand. But I yeah, absolutely. Sure I was going to do that. Lovely. It's absolutely privileged to have you here. I don't um, know if you've got five minutes to have a look around. If, if I'm allowed. Shall we step in? Yeah, that would be great. Okay, I'll, I'll mask up. Yeah, yeah, I can show you um, probably the music room that you remember, which is upstairs, up by room 48. And yeah. then we've got a brand new music suite as Ooh. well. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Um, so I'll take you, I'll take you around through here. You can't remember where your locker was, can you? We didn't have lockers in my day. Right, <laughs> we, 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 we really didn't. Does it feel a bit, a bit weird, Richard, coming in here? It's very strange. The, the posters used to go up here for the uh, various evening clubs. Careers officer was here. Oh, yeah. And the, yes, it's the upstairs of the hall, OK. Right. So there was a balcony here. Yeah, exactly. Did you ever play a gig in the hall? Yeah. Used to do the school dances, yeah. So, this is my form of at one point. Really? Yeah. Was it called room 31 then as well? No. <laughs> it's called 3 Air or something. This floor is still original, though we had it buffed up a couple it of years It definitely is, yes. Yeah, lovely floor. Parquet. We like a nice bit of parquet. So who was the head of music when you were at the school? Uh, it was Herr Prinz at the beginning. Uh-huh. And then it was Mr. Potter. Okay. Herr Prinz was an absolute curmudgeon <laughs> and totally obsessed with Austrian and German music. Well, I think we've still got some textbooks. In fact, we've got the Grove Dictionary still. Probably, um, from, from his from day. Time. But Mr. Potter was wonderful and did far more for the school and the school choir and everything. Is the art room still up here? Uh, art room is on the other side. Okay. Did you sing the William Ellis school song when you were here? Absolutely, yes. So I found a copy of that a couple of years ago. Is it, is it still signed? Not still signed? No, it was defunct. Um, if you listen to it, it's pretty gung ho. Okay, a bit too empire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This has all been built since your time. They put some practice rooms in. It's fantastic. And because of COVID, wow. we had to buy 13 keyboards because they're not allowed to share. So we're in a room full of keyboards now. Um, full of guitars. That's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and we do whole class uh, guitar in year seven and year eight. And in the six years I've been here, we really focus on band playing. So that's drumming, Great. singing, piano, electric guitar and bass guitar. Do still have that school orchestra with? We have the Le Swap Concert Orchestra, so we combine okay. with Ackland Burley and Parliament Hill. Parliament Hill. Did you have anything like this facility when you were at school, uh, Richard? No, not, 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 not at all. Um, I think pretty much if you wanted music lessons, you really had to do it extra mural. Well, so now we sort of make a really big effort with the sort of 50-odd students that are pupil premium and that maybe can't afford it, but about 30% of boys get instrument lessons at William Ellis. Fantastic. And, oh, that's absolutely great. Um, and we've got 30% doing GCSE music. That's brilliant. And the, the national average is about 6%. Mm -hmm. um, As we know, I, I mean, kids who learn music, it builds your brain in a different way and, and, and they do better in other subjects. It's, exactly. You know, if you cut music, you're cutting... Slicing part of the brain. But I mean, given the history of the school, the governors and, and the senior management team really get that and they really support music, which is why we have these great facilities. Yeah. Um, so thank you for giving the school a great reputation. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely brilliant. It's wonderful. I'm so happy to see 
Music being taught at this level, you know, this intensity is wonderful. You have to be across a great range of music, presumably, to do your job. Jack of all trades, I yeah. think, is the, uh, <laughs> is the expression. So I'm lucky that I was trained as a jazz drummer and doing quite a lot of pop, but also did a degree in classical music. Right. And I sort of need that for all the kids here, because they'll come in saying, I'm grade six piano, and then another kid will come in saying, uh, my dad's a big rapper from the 80s, I want to do production, and you've got to keep up with that. Mm -hmm. Wow. A bit yeah. different from your teachers, I should imagine. Uh, yes, who are just very, uh, very traditional. We had a wonderful divinity master, Mr. Turner. He seemed ancient, he's probably about 35, and he had a really young wife. He played boogie piano. So um, we said, we're throwing a party next week, why don't you come down? So Mr. Turner came down with his 19-year-old you know, wife and fit right in and played some piano with us, then sat in with my band and we played some blues and stuff. And that was great, that was exciting. William Ellis... Uh, Backstory. It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Someone's playing yeah. the trumpet out here. Yes, we've got uh, trumpet lessons are going on at the moment. Well, thank you so much. For oh, it's, it's an absolute thank you so much, really. That's absolutely great. Thank you. It wasn't too scary entering the building. Well, that was an unexpected pleasure, wasn't it? <laughs> Lovely. Have you done any master classes with young students? Songwriting more than guitar playing. Although I run a, a music camp now up near Woodstock in New York State where we get about 100 people and we teach songwriting and guitar, basically. Can you teach songwriting? Yes, you can, absolutely. Not, you know, write this word here, follow that with, it, with this word here. I, I think you, you almost teach the philosophy of songwriting. Because it's tempting to think about it, the process, as a kind of magic, as a kind of it, it, uh, it shamanism. Is yeah, I mean, it actually is magic, it, it, it is shamanism. As a writer, you have to become the conduit in the right mental state for this stuff to come out of you. I'm more inclined to think it comes through you rather than it's about you and your ego. I, I think it's, uh, you, know, you, you tap into something universal, you get in the right state and then it flows. And does there have to be a particular set of circumstances or does there have to be a, a room that you sit in or a I wish I knew the answer. I, I write a lot more songs. <laughs> you have to keep the shop open, you know, 24 hours. You can dream something and, and you wake up and write it down or you're on the bus. If someone says something, oh, you know, don't step on my blue suede shoes. Oh, I'll grab that. But at the same time, you, you get stuck, you, you can work on it. You know, okay, this week I'm not doing anything else. Monday I'm going to write a song in F sharp. Tuesday I'm going to write about my wife's family. <laughs> Wednesday I'm going to write a song about Donald Trump. So you set yourself goals and it's surprising. Out of seven exercise songs where you're not expecting to get anything, you might have two songs that you actually think, this is actually a good song, I'll keep it. So what happened to you when you left school? I didn't have a clear plan of what I was going to do. I thought maybe I'll go to art college, but I, I thought I'll take a gap year. While I was still at school in the sixth form here, a graphic designer called Hans Unger phoned the school and said, any school leavers would like some temporary work. So I went and worked for Hans for a year. We were doing stained glass mosaic, poster design, whole range of graphic design stuff, which was great, you know, fantastic. And where was he experience. based? Just in, in front of Highgate Woods on, on the way to Marswell Hill. And perhaps we'll wander in that direction. Should we go there? Yes. So we're entering the woods now. Highgate Woods, yes. So I used to work at Hans's workshop there and uh, lunch hours I'd come into the woods, eat my sandwiches and uh, dream. <laughs> <laughs> There's an enormous amount of green space actually in this area, isn't there? It's fantastic, yes. Well, you said you were dreaming. What sort of dreams did you have? As well, a, what, you must have been about 18 then, were you? Or? Yeah, I was 18, yeah. Um, 
thinking about creativity. I, I was very interested in art theory. I love John Cage. You know, how abstract could you get? How modern could you get? How traditional could you get? And being in the woods is a nice place to just uh, to unwind. I noticed that you've been working on a memoir called Beeswing. Yeah. Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 75. Yeah, I credit the editors with the subtitle. Really? But did you lose your way? I did, yeah, frequently, yeah. In what way? I still do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you can lose focus, you can lose direction, and you can lose confidence. That's quite a lot of things to lose, isn't it? I don't think I ever lost optimism. I've always been optimistic. But, I mean, for instance, in the mid-70s, I thought, well, I don't really understand what I'm doing musically. I don't know what the audience is. I don't know what the direction I should be going in. I can't see much future. You know, our audience from the 60s had kind of grown up and uh, stayed home a lot more, weren't coming to gigs, weren't buying records. So I thought, well, you know, that folk rock that we pioneered with Fairport is it's a bit of a passe thing right now. I couldn't really see where I fit in a world of, you know, prog rock and glam rock and proto-metal, really. And did you begin to think that there was no future for your career? Yeah, I did think that. And I stopped playing for a year. I think it was punk that brought me back to my senses, really. Why did it bring you back? Because in punk, you had an echo of Elvis's Sun Sessions. It's simple and basic, and it's all about attitude. Three chords and the truth, three chords and attitude. And I thought, oh, okay. That's what I need to do. It's back to basics. Yeah, and it wasn't until, I think, Shoot Out the Lights record in 81 that we felt that we were getting back to something real. And when you say something real, there was a huge amount of emotion in that album, wasn't there? I mean, there was a, it was a really powerful emotional statement. Well, it's a direct emotional statement. Yeah, it's, it's powerful in that sense. And you came at a, a very difficult time in your life, I think. Yeah, sometimes good records do come at a difficult time. Sometimes, mm. sometimes they come at a good time. Records are strange beasts. I just wonder if there's something in you that sees an emotional crisis as an opportunity, in a way, out of difficult emotional times comes great work. I'd rather just have a happy life, to tell you the truth. As someone said, I think it was Yo-Yo Ma said, you know, first of all, become a good person and maybe then you can become a good musician. Right. And I think no one's life is untouched by tragedy, joy, and it all gets reflected. You never know which is coming next. <laughs> as a songwriter, you just write, write about all that stuff. And as a songwriter also, maybe you write fiction. And maybe you don't write about your own life and maybe you make up stories. And I do a lot of that as well. You know, a song can be very, very naked. You know, I, I feel this, I, I, this hurts, this, you know, like a classic 60s soul song, you know, it's just absolutely direct. And Beeswing, being the title of your memoir, mm. is another story song, isn't it? Is that a, about a real person? It's probably about a couple of people. When I used to live in Suffolk, we had an old tramp used to come and stay. He'd do his round, about a six-month round. And he'd stay with us so we could wash his clothes and feed him for a couple of days. And he'd do some gardening for us. And he came from the world of horse racing, uh, you know, the, the East Anglian horse racing tradition. And at some point he got thrown out of work, you know. And his, his stories were just extraordinary about his life. And I think a lot of him went into that song. That travelling yeah. life, travelling light life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, a young love that never quite works out and that taints you for your whole life. 
you know, you fall in love with someone and nothing else quite lives up to that first bloom of love. Would you sing Beethoven for Yeah. Oh, that would be magnificent. A step behind a tree or something. Yes. Camping down the gallow and saying the work was pretty good. 
She thought we shouldn't wait for the frost And I thought maybe we should We was drinking more in those days And tempers reached the pitch And like a fool I let her run With a rambling Now the last I heard, she's sleeping rough Back on the derby beat White horse in her hip pocket And a wolf under her feet And they say she even married once A man named Romany Brown But even a gypsy caravan Was too much settling down And they say her flower has faded now Hard weather and hard boots Maybe that's just the price you pay For the chains you refuse Oh, she was a rare thing Fine as a bee's away And I miss her more than ever Words could say If I could just taste All of her wildness now If I could hold her in my arms today well, I wouldn't want it any other way That's amazing, Richard. Thank you very much. I must say there have been a number of highlights on this podcast, but if I'd been able to tell the 15-year-old me that I would stand here and listen to you sing Beeswing, I would have been died and gone to heaven. You just have a word with that 15-year-old. <laughs> that was absolutely amazing. Have you been writing songs during the lockdown? I have, yeah. Nothing to inspire us like a virus, as they say. Really? Uh, so you found it a creative period? Well, it's a period where I'm stuck at home and, you know, I've got no work for, what, 14 months, 16 months. So I'm thinking, well, good time to write. I wrote one EP. I've got another EP ready to go. I've got a band album written. God knows when we get around to that. That's, like That's 20, incredibly productive. 26 songs, which is pretty good. Um, and, and are some of them inspired by the circumstances you find yourself in during the lockdown and by the kind of claustrophobia of that? Well, maybe not directly. I'm not saying, you know, here we are in lockdown. Legends of lockdown. There might be some indirectly claustrophobic feeling to the songs. I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's more just whatever's inside you comes out. And sometimes there's a time lag with creativity anyway. It takes a few years for stuff to percolate. And then you say, oh, that thing that happened three years ago. OK, now I'm ready to write about that. You know, that person who pissed me off in 1973. Now I've got the answer. It took a long time. You know, it's a, a very long escalier. So um, what were the circumstances of your lockdown? Where were you? Who were you with? Well, I was in New Jersey. My partner actually lives around the corner at the moment, so, you know... We'll, this we'll is Zara? Play. Yeah, Zara. So we could, we could go back and forwards. And she sings, so have you been she singing sings, with yeah. her? Yeah. Which was convenient. Being a sort of... A, in a bubble with your... Isolating together. Singer. Yes. In the same bubble, exactly, yeah. Would you sing one of the songs you wrote? Sure, let me have a go. can't do nothing for you You know 
say my piece and a pound that pavement's always wishing that I could live my life Some cane and sank some whiskey. I rambled like a man insane. The arms I've held and hearts are broken. Oh, if I could live my life again. I hate the four walls of this prison Those cowards let me take the blame I swear I'll run with better company And you know, true love slipped through my fingers Somehow, I never could explain Next time, I said just what I'm thinking
read a, a, a quote that you... It's a lie. <laughs> you said there's an inner landscape you carry around with you and that's where your songs live. And for me, it's 50s or 60s suburban Britain, I guess. <laughs> is, is that still true? Did you mean that? Yes, I think that's true. We all do a bit of that. Because that's where you were in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And it's here, isn't it, really? This is suburban Britain. Yeah, absolutely. We're emerging into now from absolutely, the woods. Absolutely, yeah. Kind of set songs way back. Charles Dickens did the same thing. So is, is there James so Joyce. James Joyce was this. Is there something about this landscape of the semi-detached houses? I mean, you had a whole album called Mock Tudor. Well, I think it's just familiar. It's, it's kind of what you grew up with. It's the cards you dealt. And, and then there's the twitching of the net curtain and the gossip <laughs> beneath the suburban surface. Oh, there is all that, yeah. I, I used to see a lot more of that in Scotland, you know, where I used to visit my grandparents. There's a lot more curtain twitching used to go on. So your dad was a detective, I think, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, yeah. He was um, Scotland Yard for a while. Drug squad, vice squad, murder squad. And then perhaps you, you go around those again. I didn't want you anywhere for too long to say you get corrupted. Right. Like did he bring his work home? Shallow, no. Did he, did he <laughs> tell you some of the stories from the murder squad? Not really, no, unfortunately. Occasionally you see him on TV, like he's saying, we have no further clues at this time. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't talk too much about work. You know, he, did, he didn't talk about the war either. He was in the military during the war. Yeah. He said he, he was bound by the Official Secrets Act. And that was 50 years after the war, so... So do you think he was in intelligence? He was in something similar. He was in something called the SIB, which is the Special Investigation Branch of the military police. It, it was like um, the third man stuff. Right. But he was in uh, Antwerp rather than Vienna. So was he quite a tough character? He was tough, yeah. I mean, you know, as a teenager, he was like a bodybuilder up in the Scottish borders, you know. I could see him, you know, beating people up and stuff, you know. It was a bit scary thought, but uh, I could imagine him doing stuff like that. Really? Yeah. And was he ever violent towards you, or was he a tough, you know, disciplinarian when you yeah, were a kid? Yeah, yeah. We drank a bit as well, so, so sometimes, I, you know, I, I get the kind of the, the drunken end of things. <clears throat> How did you cope with that? Internalised it, I suppose. And do you think it taught you to... <laughs> Keep it all inside. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and what about your mum? What sort of a character was she? She was uh, what I call a proper mum. <laughs> <laughs> you know, always there for you with the TCP and the bandages. Um, literal and metaphorical. Literal and metaphorical, yeah. You know, both my parents were kind of semi-musical. My mum could really do Vera Lynn. She looked a bit like Vera Lynn as well. She, she, she could have stood in for Vera Lynn. Uh, she'd never went on stage. She wouldn't have been able to handle anything like that. But she sang... She sits around the house like all day in a very Viralin-esque tone. That must have been rather wonderful. Yeah, well, yeah, it's great. Well, when you're 14 years old, it doesn't seem like so wonderful. It's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what your parents thought about your musical adventures in those days. Because they like music. They liked the fact that it was a musical. They just didn't like the kind of music. So and they didn't understand the rock and roll? No, not at all. And I think when I was in my 40s, you know, they would actually come to a concert maybe in London and they say, well, now, when are you going to settle down and, and stop all this nonsense? Get a proper job. Get a proper job, yeah. I mean, I was in my 40s. They were still saying that to you? Still saying it. That must have hurt a bit, didn't it? Um, well, I, you know, I could see that my parents, their own creativity was frustrated. Especially my father, you know, who seemed like a creative person. But he kind of bottled all that and... Uh, you know, when he was 16, you know, left school, got a proper job and joined the police where anything artistic was a bit wimpy, you know, a bit girly. So 
he couldn't really express that. And I think he saw me as his kind of misplaced um, musical expression. But I was just playing the wrong kind of music. But there must have been, you know, <laughs> you were very successful, famous. Did that not count anything with them? Eventually, eventually. By the time my parents were in the 70s, 80s, they were finally on the same page and seeing that I actually wasn't ever going to get a proper job and accepting it. And what, not only that, that you're one of the most acclaimed guitarists in the world. I mean, they must have spotted that, didn't they? I don't think so. No? But, but, but you know, they, they saw me play the festival hall or something and sell it out, you know, so that must have impressed them. Well, it was a musical generational gap, and I don't think I'm the only one who's had that experience. It's so interesting that that doesn't really exist anymore, does it? I mean, I presume that, you know, your children are musicians and, and perform with you quite often. I mean, they embrace the kind of music that you make in a way that our parents' generation perhaps couldn't. Yeah, I, th I think in my case that's true. And when you all get together to make music, you're yeah. talking to Eliza Carthy about this, about the, you know, <laughs> the extraordinary blood harmonies that come when a family sings together. Yeah, it's amazing. How does it feel when you're on stage together? Well, it's great. Obviously, I, you know, I'm very proud of my kids. And it is nice that there is this family tradition that we all can get together, sing together, and appreciate each other's music. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Where are we now? Are we on Muswell Hill? Are we in Muswell Hill? This is Muswell Hill, yes. Yeah, this, this is a uh, shopping centre. Fairly central Muswell Hill, which is a nice leafy suburb. But people complain about it because it's not on the tube directly. And was this very much the centre of your teenage activity, this kind of area? It was the centre of, of the time with Fairport, absolutely, and the Fairport guys. Yeah, it was home of the Kinks, just down the road. So Ray and Dave Davis were in the next street to the Fairport house. Yeah. Which, did the, you know them? No, I mean, it's like a different generation. It's funny. They're all of, you know, five years our senior, but that, that's generation in popular music. But I wonder if it gave you a sense of possibility that these guys <laughs> from the next road, from Muswell Hill, could get into the charts. I don't think we thought about it in that way. Uh, it was much more about, oh, how can we be an original band? We don't care necessarily about being successful. You know, we've got this snotty attitude. We think we're so great, we're so special because we dig out these really obscure songs and we're really into lyrics. <laughs> so that, that means that we're special and different and screw the rest of the world. If we're not successful, then we'll know how great we are. That's their fault. Totally, yeah. yeah. The world doesn't understand us. You know, in 20 years' time, they'll understand what we were trying to do. So maybe some truth in that. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking that, actually. <laughs> maybe a lot of truth in that. Sorry, pause so for reflection. How did, you, how did you meet Ashley Hutchings and Simon Nicholl? Through a school friend. I had a friend at William Ellis School who lived around here. And uh, he said, oh, you, you must meet my friend Ashley, you know. And Simon was playing it in one of Ashley's bands as well. And at some point we, we thought, well, let's form a kind of a folk rock band. Let, let's be like the Loving Spoonful of the Birds. So we're on Fortis Green Road now. Famous. <laughs> Famous, Famous through Fair. And we're heading for the Fairport House, which is where Simon and Ashley used to live. Is that right? Simon's parents owned it. They were renting it out. And Ashley was renting a room there. Right. But we used to rehearse there, I had a big space we could use for rehearsal. And here we are, just poking our heads around the hedge, the Leylandii, the sign Indeed. that says Fairport, is still here. It's kind of wooden sign. It is a wooden sign, it has a, has a boat on it. Uh, Fairport was the nickname for the town of Arbroath in Scotland. 
hence the boat. We used to rehearse upstairs there. It's Fairpool Convention. <laughs> what does it feel like to be back? Good. I mean, I've driven past it a few times. This hasn't changed at all, really. It's a cream-painted house with a rather spectacular chimney on top, hasn't it? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's mock something, isn't it? Well, it's, it's mock Tudor, isn't it? Or mock Elizabethan. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you do? My name's Athos Idiadis. Athos, lovely I've to meet you. Since 1968, and I've lived here since 1975. Do you mind if we ask Richard to sing a Fairport Convention song here? He no, is yeah, the no, founder no, of Fairport Convention. I, it's not the yeah. first time. No, I get people coming around. I, I you know you do. Yeah. I used to rehearse upstairs. Yeah. I remember the boys when I first bought here. Oh, really? <laughs> I've got a photo of Dr. Monroe who built the house. Right, Dr. Monroe, yeah. Monroe. Yeah. And it's got his carriage with his. The horse and carriage. The horse and carriage oh, outside the door here. Oh, fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. He came from Scotland and he had this built and he had his surgery downstairs and on the top, that's where he used to live. He used to say, there come the day I've been making songs of finding better words. I just never lost long. The way is up along the road. There is growing fun. Too many friends are tried. Swept off this mountain with the wind. Time is up, I'm gonna see all of my friends. Tom Ledge, gonna meet Tom Ledge. If you really mean it, all comes around Just a line out, but you know, that's, that's right. It's, it's <laughs> do, you to, do you want to do it again? Nah. Are you feeling a bit emotional singing it here? Yes. 
Yeah, I can imagine, because that is a song that was written when? Oh, 68. But it seems like a song looking back on somebody's life and saying we're going to meet all our friends at the end. Well, that's it. Well, I was a very morbid child. I don't know. I used to think about those things when I was quite young. Well, that is un unusual to be thinking back on your life probably, or thinking about the end probably, of your life when you're yeah. 18. Well, perhaps there wasn't enough excitement in my life that, that I, I got driven to those kind of uh, <laughs> subjects, you know. Thank right. you so much. No, thank you so much for letting us come. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. When we were here, there was the ghost of Dr. Monroe. Really? Yeah. Well, you mean you experienced phenomena? Yeah, in the, in the upstairs room. He shut the cat in the cupboard or something, and then the cat had died. And he was restless because of this thing. How know? did you know that? Did Simon yeah. tell you? We saw him. Did you? Yeah. Well, you saw a manifestation of it? Yeah. Like, what did he do? Just manifest. Oh, <laughs> well, walk through? Yeah. Our road manager you know, spoke to him. Was it frightening? No. Well, I have to say, it was the 60s. Were any substances involved in... No. No, it was a, no. a genuine ghost of Dr Monroe. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We had a few photo opportunities in the garden here as well. You did some press photos and things like that? Like early stuff, yeah, yeah. where we're looking really embarrassed. <laughs> were they exciting times? Did you feel the pulse of the Absolutely, 60s? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it really was. I, I suppose at the time, we thought it was normal. And as the decades went by, we thought, actually, it wasn't that normal. It was a kind of a special time. Musically, artistically, you know, London was a real centre. Centre of the fashion world. It was like the centre of teenage culture. Fashion world, music world. And it all came through. So you could see and really feel that energy. And who were you seeing playing rock and roll? Gosh, um, well, everybody from Chuck Berry, Fats Domino. Did you see Jimi Hendrix? Yeah, yeah. Did you play with Jimi Hendrix? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Under, under what circumstances? What happened? <laughs> well, we used to play in a, in a club called the Speakeasy, of which Jimi was a patron. And, you know, sometimes, yeah, we'd two o'clock in the morning, you know, we'd, we'd be doing a set and, and Jimi would get up and play with us. You know, he just liked, liked to play. So it was all very relaxed and informal. Yeah, you know, we, we weren't doing Jimi Hendrix numbers. We weren't doing Fairport numbers. We, we just picked something to jam on, you know? And it was uh, just nice and relaxed. It's lovely. Did, did you yeah, learn it? anything from it? Yeah, I, I learned to raise the action on my guitar a bit um, <laughs> for vibrato purposes. Right. <laughs> James Burton told me the opposite. He said, I have to put my action down. Jimi Hendrix said, put it up. So I, I do have a fairly high action on an electric guitar. So you were playing gigs at the UFO Club and Marquee Club. Yeah. What, what was the atmosphere Middle like? Middle Earth. Uh, country Club in, in Belsize Park. What was the atmosphere like? Um, it was uh, a bit drugged, could I say. Okay. Lots of drugs going around, lots of acid being dropped. And were you doing that at the time or not? <laughs> uh, no comment. And, um, <laughs> and it was a time of you know, musical experimentation and very tolerant audiences, I think. You had you know, a wide range, you had, you had the, the soft machine and you had Pink Floyd being very psychedelic. And you had people like Ivor Cutler, you know, like it's basically kind of a, a poet with a harmonium. You had the incredible string band, you know, world music before the term was invented. All kind of cheek by jail, often on the same bill. So we're heading now for Warder Street, which Warder is where Street. the Marquee Club yes, used the to be. Club, yes, it was started by uh, Chris Barber. The, the wonderful well, the, um, the jazz player, yeah, jazz trombonist, uh, like a seminal figure in so many things. You know, like the, 
the world of you know skiffle, traditional jazz. I mean, extraordinary man, extraordinary man. So we're coming through Leicester Square now and uh, heading for Warder Street. I mean, I suppose you must have been playing gigs all over this central London area in the 60s. Yeah, we were. I mean, think, well, the speakeasy was in Margaret Street, which is uh, not too far away. But Blazers was the other that was down in Kensington, I think, somewhere. Because um, was, uh, I was interested in you that Billy Connolly said of you, of that, me? you that you kicked folk music in the ass and made it sexy in the 60s. Me? <laughs> and that there was a time when Fairport were at their height when you were taking the folk tradition to a really mainstream audience. Yeah, we saw that as our mission or whatever you want to call it, you know. It, it gave us back a connection to our culture and we thought it would be rewarding for the audience. I mean, it didn't quite work out because we never became, you know, mainstream enough. So folk music was always sidelined, you know, you, you know, still I had hits, but they were almost treated as novelties, you know, all around my hat, where it was, you know, oh, you know, it's a bit like, like Pan's people, you know, doing a hornpipe, you know, it's, it's kind of, I think that the Brits always saw American culture as being more more hip. And did the Americans identify with the British culture? I mean, when you went to America and you took over some of that British culture, I mean, did, I mean, did I mean, it go bit, down well? I'd say that connection was apparent to the musicians we knew. I'm not sure about the audiences that we knew. You know, you know the people who embraced us the most in the States were with the black, the black audiences who saw something that, that, you know, certainly it wasn't ripping them off, but it was something different where we weren't trying to be, you know... You weren't taking their culture and exactly. imitating it. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it, was something, uh, it was something a bit different and it had a, a kind of a rhythmic uh, infectiousness about it and I think they appreciated that. Let's keep walking. I, I want to ask about the sort of relationships within the band of, of who influenced who. Who hated each other. <laughs> You had Sandy Denny coming in, and you had Dave Swarbrick coming in, yeah. and they were bringing some of this folk sensibility with them, I guess. Yeah. Did you already have it? I mean, were you already open to that? We all um, hung out in folk clubs, you know, in our teenage years, part of our diet growing up in London. So folk music was kind of on the back burner, though. It didn't seem like hip and trendy. We liked folk music, but we wanted to be more of a rock band. When Sandy came into the band, she had a repertoire of folk songs, of traditional songs. And she'd sing those in the van, she'd sing those backstage, and it, it slowly sort of filtered through into live performance. And so we would kind of uh, wrap ourselves around Sandy's versions of folk songs, traditional songs. And uh, when Swarb came into the band, uh, that, that was the point where, where we said, well, we're going to make this record that's going to be rock versions of traditional music. It was Legion Leaf. Legion Leaf, yeah. No one's really done that before. It'll contemporize the tradition, tradition will reach out to more people, bigger audience. So it, it was a kind of a, it was a slow process and, and then, then it was a real conscious decision to make that record. And that came at a very difficult time, didn't it? I mean, just after that, the car crash, which yeah. um, killed your girlfriend and, and killed uh, Martin, the drummer. Was there an emotional backdrop to it as well? Well, it, it was a difficult time in, in the sense that, um, you know, we were all suffering from uh, shock, I think, you know, you know, PTSD. And we needed something to keep us going, to keep us together as a band, or we might have split at that point. So it gave us a mission, 
something to occupy ourselves. And it did that. It really helped us to, uh, to get through what was a tough time. And with Swarb, was there a kind of fantastic musical rivalry between you? I mean, I just, each one trying to go faster than the other. And, uh, you know, was there, was there a kind of competitiveness there? I think Swarb was trying to go faster than himself. <laughs> uh, I never liked, you know, that kind of sparring kind of music. I, 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 I found that kind of distasteful. So, Dueling banjos. Yeah, type. exactly. So, uh, uh, if he wanted to do that, I, I kind of back off and play second fiddle. <laughs> um, and I don't think we were really competitive. I, 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 th I think it was more just trying to create the right kind of music, good music. So we're coming towards number 90, Warder Street, <laughs> scene of the Marquee Club. I think you have a song sort of inspired by playing a gig here and then having to walk home. Well, I do. When I was, I think, 16 years old, my parents decided to move us from um, Highgate, which is not too far north, up to uh, Whetstone, which is almost at the end of the Northern Line. It's, so it's about 10 miles north. And uh, usually at the marquee, that, you know, whatever band was playing, there'd be two sets. And I could watch the first set and get the last train home. Or I, I could choose to stay for the second set and knowing that I'd missed the last train home. And I often did stay for the second set. So I'd walk home at, you know, 11 p.m. And it's uh, 10 miles, you know, I'd get in about 2.30 in the morning. Wow, that's uh, some walk, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I was living with, with my parents, so I'd have to sneak in without making any noise. I knew every, every creak on the stair. <laughs> and you told me... This is on a school night as well, so, so I'd be up for school at 7. So you really would? Yeah. Wow. And what was that walk like? I mean, did you use it as a time to think and...? Uh... Well, yeah, it was a bit surreal, actually. You wouldn't see anybody. Uh, there wouldn't be much traffic either, so it'd just be very, very quiet. And you're just walking through, you know, the wastelands of North Finchley, which is uh, a depressing place. Suburban landscape. This is it. Soho Lofts. But there is a, a blue plaque up there to Keith Moon. <laughs> of uh, all people. Who says played several sets here. I'm sure you the were here for here. some of them. You, probably, you might have played hundreds of sets here. The, the Who were here for years. They were resident here. It's a residency, yeah. yeah. Or it seemed like years. Yeah, Shem's not here anymore. The Marquee Club was a wonderful place. Um, for a while it was, uh, you know, the hip place to play. So how many times did you walk home from here? I, I can't count. Scores? Hundreds? No, not hundreds. A dozen, maybe. Half a dozen. Ten. Ten. <laughs> But it was, it was a process, I mean, you know, I, hopefully I got something out of it. Well, I identify with that, you know. I used to do the same thing, I lived in Sheffield when I was a teenager, I used to do exactly the same thing. I used yeah. to be at a friend's house till late or doing something till late and then I'd walk the entire length of the city. And yeah. I found it a really great experience, actually. Would you sing the song here for us? Sure. Or would you, you know, uh, yeah. Do you want to go around the corner? Should we go up the alley? You've yeah, just got up the alley, the alley yeah. <laughs> Perhaps I'll earn a few, Bob, here. Yes. Will I get, will put your hat down? Yeah, I'll, I'll leave the case open. <laughs> oh, the last bus is gone. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. It just doesn't exist. And the words that flew between me and you, I must be crossed off your list. Walking along miles home I don't mind 
feel bad to be stuck all the way In the dark I rehearse all the right things to say I'll be home, I'll be sober, but break of day Walking the long miles home Not a soul that's around As I put more ground Between me and you And the hotels asleep Or maybe the deep In the old forever So I'm walking along my soul I'll be home, I'll be sober by break of day Walking along miles home I just got to find a couple of quid to put in your guitar case. (laughs) (laughs) It just occurred to me, you were saying earlier about how long it takes for a story to come out. How long did it take for you to write that song? A mere 30 years. So you wrote it 30 years after you were doing the the walking? I wish I'd written it at the time. It would have given me comfort to to have been singing as, as I strolled along. I was probably singing Keep Right On To The End Of The Road by Harry Lauder instead. It's a good walking song. Talking about old singers, can we go on to Covent Garden, where there's a, a, an encounter that you had in a pub that encounter, I want to yes, unveil? Absolutely. Let's do it. So you're bringing us to a pub called The Lamb and Flag in Lamb Covent Flag, Garden. Which may mean it had a connection to a pilgrimage. Traditional starting points for pilgrimages were called The Lamb and Flag. 
there is, in fact, an illustration on That's there. That's very nicely. The pub scene. Oh, no, very. <laughs> and, the, and the lamb's got a, a halo, gold yeah. halo. And that obviously used to hang out here somewhere. Let's take it to the wall. So this is definitely a remnant of the old historic Covent Garden, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yes. Look at that worn door. There was some punch-up with, with uh, Dryden, you know, the writer and poet. Uh, really? Hereabouts, yeah. So someone tried to kill him or something. I don't know the whole story. Oh, let, well, let's go inside. <laughs> I think there was a hit out on him, I think. An, an assassination attempt? Yeah. Right. So you brought us here because there's a song associated with the pub. There is indeed. Uh, 1967, 68, we used to play in Covent Garden, just right off the square there, at the club called Middle Earth. And uh, they'd run all-nighters at the weekend, so you'd play two or three sets and, and they'd be very spread out. So you could stay and watch the other bands, which might be great fun. At some point, I snuck over here for a quiet pint. And there's an altercation in the pub and a bit of shouting and pushing and uh, a voice rises above the, the general melee and says, don't you know who I am? I'm Joseph Locke. And there's a sudden hush in the pub. And uh, people say, go on, Josie, give us a song, Josie. And I didn't know who Joseph Locke was at the time. Joseph Locke, a uh, famous Irish tenor. At that time, he was a tax exile from the UK. He owed the Inland Revenue lots of money. So he wasn't officially allowed to be in the UK. There were impersonators. There were people going around claiming to be Joseph Locke. So I was never absolutely sure if this was the real one or, or it was an impersonator. I, I told my father about it who was actually stationed around the corner at Charing Cross Police Station at the time. And, um, and he said, oh, that, that, that would have been the, the real Joseph Locke. And, and he got his Joseph Locke record out and played it for me. You know. Did Joseph Locke sing in the pub here? He, he did sing, yeah. I, I can't remember for the life of me what he sang. But he sounded pretty good. I mean, he sounded good. You know. Slightly rusty, but you know, proper Irish tenor. You know, he, he sang a bit and, and then he started swearing and, and, and they basically threw him out. <laughs> and then how long did it take for you to write the song about him? Not very long. You wrote that at the time? No, I wrote it 30 years later. Okay. <laughs> so That's not, a recurring not, theme. Not, not too long, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I need to think about it a bit, you know? Think about it a bit. You know, sometimes the things in your past uh, just stay with you. And at some point, they just bubble to the surface and you, you think, well, it's a song, you know, it's a song. It's song about fame as well. Reputation, one generation and you're gone. My name is Joseph Locke God bless all here and state your pleasure If you'll refill my glass I'll sing Ave Maria I'll sing the old Bolleroad Oh, the shop of Galway Gray I've been gone from you for some while those English taxmen, they crap my style. But if you think I'm some bold upstart, just let my voice be my calling card. It's melted heart and royalty drops foul. They love me well, they love me My name is Joseph Locke Ladies and gents now on your honour This is a damn poor show I've sung for kings and princes You're not call me a drunkard 
singing Bobby I'll find the door take your bullies off me a sweet rage it was that loved me well they loved me well I love the way you quote the Italian yeah, it's a bit of a bit of Scarlatti in the, in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure my, my Italian pronunciation is atrocious. Lasciate, yeah. lasciate, lasciate. I don't know the difference. I don't. Richard, it's been astonishing to spend the time with you and, and to walk around London with you and to well, hear thank you. your memories and your stories. Well, it's been a privilege and to, to, to share it with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Richard Thompson in Muswell Hill and, as you've heard, lots of other parts of London amazing us with his glorious songs. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really like your support because we rely entirely on our listeners to keep us going. So if you would like to become a patron, just go to folkonfoot.com forward slash support us and you can sign up. There are loads of great rewards. You just make a small monthly contribution and it will keep us doing what we love best, which is bringing you into touch with the joyful music that our artists make. Mm -hmm.